Welcome to our podcast series, Five Questions, Five Answers, in which we explore recent U.S. trade policies and U.S. trade rules that can affect thousands of companies. We have a goal in mind to help you, the listener, translate the legal into real-world business strategies. My name is Bridget Matheson. I'm the Director of North American Manufacturing here at Aaron Fox Schiff in Washington, D.C. I get the easy part. I get to ask the questions and I get to choose the colleague or the guest I know will have the right answers for you. So in the next few minutes, I will ask five questions that reflect the concerns we've been hearing from business leaders. All who want to understand the rules, but they also need to mitigate their business risk while increasing their bottom line. So let's start. Today's interview is with Steve Levine. Steve Levine is the editor of The Electric. It's a newsletter that is focused on batteries and electric vehicles. So who better to be a guest on our podcast? He's a journalist, but he's also got a very unique career. So for those of you who are listening today, Google Steve. He's got a recent book. It's called The Powerhouse, America, China, and the Great Battery War. And I am delighted to have him here with us today. We are joined by one of my colleagues, James Kim. James, if you have not heard of him before, before joining Aaron Fox Schiff, James was the attorney advisor at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And during that tenure, he was advising CBP on legal and policy issues involving the USMCA. And guess what? James and Steve spoke together for one of Steve's latest article that was published on The Electric. So I have them both here with us today, and I can't wait for this conversation. Steve, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Birgit. Well, you said a lot. I'm a journalist. You know, I have a, a long career of writing about a lot of different things. I was a foreign correspondent for a long time. I was based in the former Soviet Union. I was based in Pakistan and before that in the Philippines. And that's kind of an outlook that I take to my reporting on batteries and on EVs. I see them as geopolitical actors that the size that they will attain in the global economy make them animate forces. And therefore, they have impacts on economies and geopolitics. And we're seeing local business around the world affected by them. There's a boom going on. There's a craze, a mania in the markets. The values of some companies have doubled just over the last month because of this mania. Lithium prices are through the roof. And so it's a very exciting field. I come from oil. My first book was on oil and geopolitics. This is batteries and geopolitics. I've been writing on batteries and EVs. It's 12 years now. The powerhouse was published in 2016 when everything we're looking at now was just an aspiration and no one expected this quickly that we were going to see what we're seeing now. And what I can say is that we are in a very chaotic decade and we will not be able to guess what we're going to see when it's 2029 or 2030. You know, I read that article that uh, you wrote, I think was April of last year, 2021, I think. You were interviewed by Business to Business about your interest in the electrical vehicle industry. And let me just quote from that article because it succinctly says what you just summarized. In that interview, you said, I come at it a little bit different from other people who are in this space. 
Most people are coming at it from a climate background and see EVs and batteries as a solution. And that is a framework. But I come from oil and geopolitics, last quote. You went on to explain that the rising price of oil was poised to take electric transportation, not just on overdrive, but spur this tremendous economic and political interest in these non-fossil fuel vehicles. But in that interview, there was a but, and that but was all about the battery. I couldn't agree more, by the way. So, Steve, the battery supply chain, let's talk about that. Who's got batteries? How are they developing them? And at what pace? Are we speaking only China, Europe, and the United States? So, it's very important to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the battery. If I can use just very briefly oil as an analogy. So when I was based in the former Soviet Union, these states, the stands, right, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, they had immense volumes of oil, making them technically wealthy, but not actually wealthy because they had no way of getting that oil out. And the geopolitics of that day was pipelines, pipeline politics, building a great pipeline that would monetize those countries' wealth and make them actual geopolitical actors. The equivalent of the pipeline today is the midstream battery supply chain. It's who can take the raw cobalt, manganese, lithium and nickel and turn them into the active ingredients that go into a battery and make an EV go. Who controls that midstream has the economic power and the geopolitical power. And right now, almost the entirety of that midstream is in China. This is why China has the power that everyone's talking about. So yes, there's most of the lithium known lithium reserves in the world are in Australia, the next highest is in the lithium triangle of South America. Nickel, most of the nickel in Indonesia and Canada and Russia. But almost all of this stuff, before it gets into an electric vehicle or any electronic device, is going through China. Because it, over the last 15 years really, has captured the commanding heights. The commanding heights are that midstream. So if China has captured the commanding height, I assume it's because other trading partners and countries kind of allowed it to happen. But if that's the case now, and I'm not arguing that it isn't, what uh, does the United States need to do? So what the U.S. and Europe and its partners need to do is start on the course of building competing midstream industries. And it took 15 years for the Chinese to do this. This is not going to happen overnight, but it means building plants that can start by taking the raw ore and breaking it down into the constituent processed powders and chemicals that then at the end are the cathode powders, the anode powders that are then coated onto the foils that make the batteries that we need. We need to build these from scratch, these industries. We don't have the factories to do it, and we don't have the talent, the people who know how to do it. And neither do the Europeans, by the way. And so both are starting from scratch. The U.S., you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. 
that the U.S. over the last year has taken a gigantic step with legislation, the infrastructure bill, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. These are putting really about the same amount of money that the Chinese poured into the sectors over the last 15 years and pouring it into our own, a nascent American battery industry over the next decade from now until 2032. Yeah, I agree. And while we haven't mentioned it, but uh, you were talking about raw ore, uh, but also particularly in this industry, it's this whole phenomena of critical minerals recycling and battery recycling that I find um, such a technological leap um, that will uh, also, I think, help shape the next decade for the electric vehicle sector. Yeah. Well, I think that recycling, it will be a necessary part of the industry because there won't be enough. There is not going to be enough, especially nickel and lithium, as fast as we want or just in absolute terms. And so to transition the global vehicle fleet, that's a billion cars, if it's going to be a billion that we end up transitioning, that's a lot of material. And so to the degree that it ends up as we're creating batteries over the decades, when cars become used up, if their batteries are recycled, that's a decades-long process. This is something that's going to start very slow. I don't think it's going to be a major factor this decade, and it's going to only start being a major factor in the second half of the next decade. And the reason for that is how long cars will last, how long until in critical mass they're going to be ready for the recycling bin. So, James, here's my question to you. Steve talked about U.S. incentives for U.S. domestic manufacturing, funding, policy, regulation, etc., let alone corporate strategy and, and corporate plans. But the supply chain, and Steve makes at that point extremely well, the supply chain is still global for the U.S. industry. And let's face it, it does sound like China is still in control of much of the EV battery supply chain. And we know that the last or the former administration uh, levied pretty hefty tariffs on most Chinese batteries, goods and machine parts, along with what, 11% on lithium iron batteries from the area. So it seems to me that the uh, tariffs imposed on this supply chain can be problematic for the short term. Do you think these tariffs will continue under this administration? And if so, how can U.S. battery companies deal with that phenomenon? Well, Bridget, I think that your first question on whether the China tariffs will continue is really the million dollar question that a lot of folks have. And uh, unfortunately, you know, no one can read the future here. So it's kind of hard to predict what will happen, although there are certainly been many attempts to try to predict that. But what we do know is that the U.S. trade representative is currently undergoing a statutorily mandated four-year review of its China tariffs. And that under this process, you know, it has requested and received comments in support of those tariffs, although we don't know at this point the substance of those comments or which tariffs 
such as the battery tariffs, were involved because those comments haven't been made public yet. But if I were to hazard a guess, I think that I would say that the 301 China tariffs are probably likely to continue for the time being. As recently as this month, USTR Catherine Tai reiterated that the tariffs were a useful tool to be used in conjunction with other investments in order to increase U.S. competitiveness. And I think that the China tariffs on lithium-ion batteries in particular serve the administration's policies in trying to shore up the critical supply chains in the U.S. You know, we've seen, for example, in the Inflation Reduction Act that Steve mentioned, that the EV tax credits not only attempt to incentivize EV battery production in North America, but also at the same time aim to decrease our reliance on the Chinese battery supply chain. And it does that by excluding vehicles that would use Chinese batteries or Chinese battery materials. So frankly, I wouldn't be surprised to see that the 301 China tariffs on batteries continue or even be raised in some instances. So Bridget, to your other question, what can companies do who are facing these Chinese tariffs? Well, you know, many expect that USTR, even if they do continue the Chinese tariffs, that they will open up another round of exclusions for them, which means that companies will have a chance to request product-specific exclusions. And in the case of batteries, there would likely be compelling arguments as to why the tariffs could be potentially hurting this emerging U.S. battery industry. And we would also expect that USTR will open up its four-year review of the tariffs to companies who oppose them. And that may be another important opportunity for the companies to weigh in. And Finally, if USTR decides to continue the tariffs on Chinese batteries, but does not grant any exclusions for them, which could very well be the case, then I think that companies will need to be highly strategic about their supply chain and sourcing decisions. And in doing so, they should have a strong understanding of the trade and customs rules that underlie these decisions, such as how a battery's country of origin is determined and whether they would be subject to 301 tariffs in the first place. I think this is where knowing the rules can make all the difference in the ability to stay competitive and viable in this industry. Well, what a great segue to my last question for you, James, before I get back to Steve. And it's my favorite topic of conversation, actually. Would you agree with me that given what both you and Steve have said and the language of the Inflation Reduction Act and the clear intent, it seems to me, of the negotiators for USMCA, would you agree with me that the USMCA as a North American incentive might be a silver lining? Yes, I think that that's a good way to put it, that the USMCA is a possible silver lining for companies in this space who are trying to get around the Chinese tariffs or at least save costs. And I think the flip side to that is that the Inflation Reduction Act and its EV tax credits may not have been sort of the boon that some of these EV companies were hoping for. And the reason for that is the reason that I mentioned earlier, which is that you know the IRA has specific provisions that would exclude vehicles that rely on the Chinese battery supply chain from being eligible for these EV tax credits after 2024. Now, you know, the regulations for the IRA are not out yet, so we don't know exactly how these tax credits will be implemented. But from the language of the act itself, it appears to be a pretty strict requirement. And I can give you an example to show why. Let's say, for example, that you're mining critical minerals for a battery such as lithium or cobalt from Canada or one of U.S. trading partners. As Steve mentioned, because China is in control of much of the know-how for processing these minerals into battery precursor chemicals, we would expect that the minerals would have to be sent to China 
for that processing to occur. And then let's say that you know the processed chemicals are then sent to Korea, where they're used to make the battery cells. And then the battery cells are sent back to Canada, where they're assembled into a battery pack. So in this scenario, even though the battery minerals are from Canada, the cells are made in Korea, and the pack is assembled in Canada, the language of the IRA would actually exclude any vehicle that's using this battery from the tax credit because of the fact that the processing of the minerals occurs in China. So the takeaway here is that if the EV battery touches the Chinese supply chain in any way, it looks like the EV tax credit, at least the 30D clean vehicle credit won't be available. And I think this is borne out by industry analysts who I think currently estimate that out of the 72 EV models that are currently on the market, at this time, not a single one would actually qualify for the full credit once the additional sourcing requirements go into effect. So the takeaway from this is that EV producers in this space may need to find bridge solutions before shifts in sourcing and manufacturing locally have been fully implemented. And one of these solutions could be to utilize the trade rules to their benefit, such as qualifying the vehicle under a free trade agreement like the USMCA, which can provide duty-free benefits to vehicles that cross the border. As under the NAFTA, which was the USMCA's predecessor, many companies are seeing the benefits of nearshoring production to Mexico or Canada, where labor and production costs can often be lower than in the US. And another benefit to nearshoring is that there's the potential to eventually qualify for the EV tax credit by meeting the North American production and battery sourcing requirements. So I think in a nutshell, you know, Companies in the EV industry are likely to have to continue to rely on a global supply chain, even as you know production and sourcing becomes more and more localized. But under this environment, there can definitely be highly beneficial strategies and tools for reducing costs and minimizing risks if the trade rules are well understood and used to your advantage. I think for our listeners who are with us today, there's a distinction between the Inflation Reduction Act, which is all about, as James mentioned, the vehicle sold off the lot to a U.S. consumer, and it's about a tax credit with its rules in the Inflation Reduction Act. Those rules are going to be proposed and will come out by the end of next year, at least in the proposed stage. So we will see a whole lot more into the administration thinking. The second is U.S. trade rules and tariffs. Now, tariffs are a tax But in trade jargon, it's tariffs. And these trade rules and these tariffs are going to be around probably much longer than the Inflation Reduction Act. And they just happen to be coming onto the agendas of many corporate conference rooms right now. And it is, as I think James mentioned, you really have to understand where the supporting rules are and to understand um, what qualifies and why to take advantage, hopefully, of both of them, um, because things are going to heat up pretty soon in terms of consumer purchasing and uh, federal funding. I think President Biden announced, was it this week, um, the first tranche of uh, uh, federal funding for EV infrastructure and charging stations. I mean, 2023 is going to be a very exciting year. We are um, unfortunately out of time. Um, I think we could have gone on for quite a lot more time, but I 
really would like to thank both James and Steve for this really wonderful conversation. It was not only timely, informative, and thought-provoking. I'd like to invite both of you back, say, in a few months, and let's take stock of where we are. Steve, for listeners who have uh, not heard of you or your newsletter, how do they get in touch with you? Thanks for that. You can feel free to email me, steve at theinformation.com. And I think you may be posting it along with the podcast, which is a link that you can use to subscribe to the newsletter. We will. Thank you. And for everyone else, if you want to talk to James or me, or you want to visit our website, it's pretty easy to find us. It's Aaron Fox Schiff Electric Mobility. Smart in your world. You know, for us at Aaron Fox Schiff, it's more than a tagline. Thank you, everyone.